Hello, what is going on? What is new? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Sweeten Up. My name is Jeff Spencer. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you are new to the podcast, my mission is to bring you interesting conversations with interesting and influential people within the state of Connecticut with which I live in. I am coming at you from my podcast studio in Newtown, Connecticut. I have an amazing guest that came on the podcast today to share with you all. But before we get to this episode, if you support our sponsor, you support the podcast, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, anchor dot F-M, the easiest way to make a podcast. Like I said, today on the podcast, I had a truly amazing individual. We had a really, really great conversation, and I do not want to waste any time and getting to that. So without further ado, my guest on the podcast today was Matt Flurry. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Connecticut Science Center. He is a member of the Association of Science Technology Centers Board and the Connecticut Board of Regents for Higher Education and has driven major fundraising campaigns to effectively engage education, business, and government leaders. So I really hope you enjoy this as just as much as I did. It's my interview with my friend, the CEO and president of the Connecticut Science Center, Mr. Matt Flurry. Joining me now on the podcast, the president and CEO of the Connecticut Science Center and a family friend for many, many years, Matt Flurry. Matt, how are you doing, my friend? How's it going this evening? Hi, Jeff. Uh, it's going well, and it's really nice to talk to you. Well, congratulations on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's an honor to speak with you. Um, I think it's uh, really awesome, uh, everything that you're doing and everything that's going on uh, at the Connecticut Science Center. And, you know, I figure, you know, we might as well just get right down into it. Um, was it always in the plans to become the, the president and CEO of not just Connecticut Science Center, but a Science Center? Or <laughs> what was your... Uh, what was your career aspirations growing up and, and what eventually led you to where you are now? Well, I don't know if it helps me or hurts me in this job, but I is, was one of those kids who grew up not loving science in the traditional way. Right. Uh, and no, I, I frankly wasn't even exposed to science centers when I was growing up. Um, though I do remember uh, as a very young child born in New York City going to the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan, which is, is truly a science center, though it's a different kind of science center than the one we have here in Connecticut. Right. Um, but I think uh, as I reflect back on my experience as a kid, I remember what turns out to be one of the more important aspects of science education and any kind of education, which is informal, uh, non-school learning. Right. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, as, as the head of the Science Center, uh, where we offer a great many services to schools and to teachers, we're big believers in quality science education at school and believe that's really important. Sure. Um, and that it can be done and needs to be done more effectively than it often is, unfortunately. Right. But there's also a great proportion of a learning life that happens outside of school. You know, then you can see that not looking at it qualitatively, but quantitatively, just think about the percentage of a person's life that is spent within the walls of a classroom, True. which when you're a kid feels like an awful lot. Yes. And then the percentage throughout your life that turns out to be less and less as a percentage. Um, and, uh, you know, researchers have in some cases acknowledged that there's a great amount of learning happening every day through a child's and an adult's 
but a child's everyday experiences and experimentations in the backyard with uh, risky adventures uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> on bicycles or with fishing uh, or building things with Legos. Uh, so science centers are really designed to create that, to, to accentuate that kind of learning environment. And I did not grow up seeing myself as a science person, and I'm still right. not a scientist. I don't advertise myself as one. Gotcha. Um, or as being involved in museums, to be honest with you. So it was a, a matter of, I think, as, as many people uh, see these days in particular, an evolving career. One step leads to another. Opportunities emerge. People, um, if you're fortunate, see your potential to do something that perhaps you hadn't grown up doing or been trained to do in the first place. Sure. Or in my case, you, you put yourself back in school to learn to do the things you're going to need. Uh, to achieve your next step, right. which in my case was was to run the science center. Right, that's awesome. Um, I, that's a really that's a really great story. And 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 um and and you know you're you're so right about um about how important uh it is for uh you know kids to get outside and um and to really you know educate themselves on on things more than just in the walls of the classroom. And you know I I definitely want to get to that. And um but one thing I want to ask is. I know that uh, you've been involved with the Connecticut Science Center since since the start, and um, I'm just curious uh, how far back, uh, you know, when did you first start with the Science Center? You know, just with the development, and um, and 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 why why did you decide to get into uh, the development of a science center for Connecticut? Yeah, well, Jeff, that's right. I, I do go well back with the project. I had after a couple of chapters, first as a journalist. Uh, which is, I think, what I was doing when I became acquainted with your family. Right. Um, and later in corporate communications, um, in the telecom industry, uh, I had you know, enjoyed myself very much and learned a, a little bit about a lot of things. Uh, there came a point where I had the opportunity to work on an economic development initiative in Hartford. And that project encompassed a bunch of different things, everything from uh, a football stadium uh, for UConn over in East Hartford gotcha. uh, to the convention center and the hotel and residential and retail complexes that were developed, a bunch of residential developments and the park system along the river. We're all, we were involved, our agency was involved in, in those things. And I was really drawn to the opportunity to be part of an, what, you know, they typically refer to as an urban renaissance. And, you know, this is a moment after, I know your mom worked for the Hartford Whalers, right? Yes. Um, yes. You know, after ago. we had lost the Whalers, um, we had lost in the effort to bring the Patriots to Hartford. We right. had lost stalwart institutions like G Fox. Right. Uh, Lutkin's limited uh, employers. It, it was really a very tough time in, in the late 90s in town. And um, nevertheless, I had really fallen for Hartford uh, where I was a transplant. I, I wasn't raised in the community here. Right. And when the opportunity came to try to lift up the city through this initiative, um, it just really drew at me as a chance to make a difference. I always I guess I felt in my various travels in life that the thing that I most wanted to be part of was something that was community building in some sense. Wow. And this felt like a big opportunity to do that, even though I wasn't a convention center builder or a science center guy. Oh, definitely. Right. And in fact, when I, I first came back to Hartford to work on that project starting in 2000, the science center wasn't even formally in our 
plans. Um, We gravitated to that after some research as they were trying to figure out the right mix of things to construct as part of this effort in Hartford. And the Science Center idea, which had, in fact, been around the broader community for quite some years, falteringly, but consistently, kept coming back as the thing we should do. So, you know, the organization started doing it. It was a small shop and, and I just kind of gravitated to it as a project to help on. Right. Because we were a small team and, and they needed arms and legs. And, and so I got to work on it. That's and awesome. one thing led to another. I was facilitating the initial uh, convening of the founding board of trustees, the initial fundraising effort, the initial articulation of what the project would be working with consultants to, to further define it, and then ultimately setting up uh, a small nonprofit organization that would drive the project. And we hired a CEO uh, to run the project, a gentleman named Ted Sergi, who had recently retired as the commissioner of the Department of Education after a long career as an educator. I see. And Ted gave me the extraordinary opportunity to work for him on that project. He, myself, and <laughs> an administrative person joined the team. Wow. Uh, created the team <laughs> and, um, you know, shaped the project. And Ted really carried it on his shoulders with the board of trustees to, to complete the science center with me as the deputy. Right. We put together a team. My job was to pull together the operating plans. And eventually there came a moment where, you know, Ted had determined that once it was constructed, he was going to move on and they would need somebody to run it. And I was involved enough and, you know, evidently well enough regarded in in my involvement that the board gave me an opportunity right. uh, to, to do it. And, and in the meantime, I wanted to do it because I had really fallen in love with the whole idea of right. what science centers are about. True. So it was a, an incredible opportunity and, and hard to believe that it's now 11 years since we opened the doors and here we are. We closed them again because of COVID-19, right. so which what is year, not what I had hoped to do. Right. So what year did the, um, did the Science Center open again? Uh, we opened in June 2009. 2009. And, and you must be super proud of how the building looks. I mean, when you drive through Hartford and you see the, you see the, the Science Center, it, you're just like, wow, what? That building just looks, you know, from an architectural um, architectural ex, uh, aspect. Um, I'm curious, like how how proud are you? Uh, proud of you? How it looks? I mean, I think I'm, along with everybody else who had any role in this, extraordinarily proud of of what what the institution has become in our community. Um, architecturally, it is the unmistakable mark of the great world architect Caesar Pelli, mm. um, oh, who nice. sadly passed uh, last okay. year. Um, but he won a global competition among world architects wow. to construct this building. And that concept was presented in a public setting against three other very famous architects with wow. their concepts. That's cool. And uh, the board of trustees at the time selected that concept. And, you know, projects like this are not easy. Um, and it wasn't easy, but we got it done and 10 years hence, I can tell you that the building serves magnificently, not only the functions that a science center needs, which are, are pretty, pretty elaborate, but as you pointed out, Jeff, I mean, it's really become an iconic centerpiece of the East right. Hartford skyline. Yeah. 
uh, meaning the eastern side of Hartford, as seen from the town of East Hartford yeah. <laughs> very often. Um, and it's just uh, magnificent. And it says so much about the regard that our community has for science and the way that we celebrate science. And it's saying that also in terms of the things we do to celebrate in sci science and inspire particularly children and younger people to see themselves in science and science in their lives. Right. And, you know, speaking on that, uh, what kind of, um, you know, what kind of uh, uh, collaboration, so to speak, do you, does the Science Center have between our schools and our colleges um, in the state? What kind of resources do they provide and, and how do they all kind of connect together? Well, in particular, the Science Center collaborates with K-12 schools um, and in the subset of K-12 schools, elementary and middle school around science education. Gotcha. Uh, we serve 50 to 70,000 school kids per year in field trips wow. from all across the state and right. into Western Massachusetts, a little wow. Rhode Island and Connecticut too. Um, and those field trips come to the science center because there's an experience that's uh, aligned with the scientific curriculum that the teachers are focused on. And because it's popular, they have a great time and our team does a fantastic job with it, but they can go on a field trip that's focused on broadly a topic like innovation or specifically a topic like biology or genetics. Right. And our team provides not only the experiences in the exhibit galleries, but also uh, laboratory sessions. Um, you know, so the, the, the field trips uh, are a significant subset of a 300,000 people or so per year who will come to the Science Center. Right. And then we serve another 25 or 30,000 a year going to schools and other venues to provide services as well. We have been engaged by the State Department of Education uh, to help roll out science uh, curriculum and standards. Oh, nice. And, pra and, and teaching practices uh, and continue to do that. Um, so it's a very close partnership that we have. That's With awesome. higher education, it's a little bit more um, uh, specific in specific projects or research projects gotcha. uh, that we might do. Uh, smaller numbers, but also very important to us. Nice. Um, you know, and I, something something else uh, that I, I really wanted to ask was, um, you know, what is it what is it like for you being the president right. and CEO of not only such an important building in the state? But a building, you know, a large building that has many employees, exhibits, visitors, you know, so much going on on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, what's that like for you to, to go in um, to the Connecticut Science Center as your, your, your daily office? Well, you know, I have 11-year-old uh, boys, and um, I always joke that I think they have a funny perspective on what it means to go to work because uh, they see their mother on television Right. And then they come to my office and we climb the stairs and walk past the dinosaur and the whale <laughs> and the balls and, you know, right. and, 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 you know, play with things and exhibits. And, and it's a great, you know, it's a great, great place to be. You know, they've seen my office too, um, but they don't have to, thank goodness, live through the day to day of what <laughs> right. it is to, to keep a place like this going and keep it successful. Right. But, you know, I think the, the, the routine experience is one having been in different careers through my life all, all of which i've enjoyed and valued and appreciated um it is very special to work for a community serving institution and on one level it's 
uh, almost harder because of the kind of emotional uh, commitment that requires and right. that it entails just because of the way we behave when we work for organizations like these. Um, we're mission driven. Um, but when you're in my role, you not only have to worry about great experiences for people, you have to worry about great experiences for employees. You have to right. worry about retaining employees. You have to worry about, uh, you know, having the right capacity in the organization, uh, the right behaviors in the organization. And you have to worry about the resources to keep them there. Right. So it's, you know, we, we, we run a nine and a half million dollar business every year. Wow. And uh, that is not easy to do, I mean, let alone COVID and, and all of this. Oh, yeah, we're, I can't we're, imagine. We're, you know, all in, in difficult circumstances. But, you know, even in a good year, we, we run to essentially a break-even type of scenario. We want to generate enough revenue from the services we provide and the donations we're fortunate to get to pay for those services to happen. Right. And then do it again, you know, live to fight <laughs> another day. Um, so that can be, you know, extraordinarily challenging. There are right. years when we have down years. Uh, we have to make tough decisions just like any other business. Um, and then there are years when it feels a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> and just about when it feels like it's going in the right direction, something <laughs> crazy happens. <laughs> I know, right? And, uh, you know, I, I, I was going to bring that up. I want to mention that, you know, I, I see the Science Center just opened its doors recently for the first time since the pandem uh, pandemic. And, um, you know, I'm curious, what measures will have to be in place for the time being? And what opportunities could this pandemic afford to educate kids who maybe were never that interested in biological sciences? Hmm. Well, I, I think that it's going to present a lot of opportunities and need for talented, science-minded young people to find their way into careers in health care, health protection, health research, treatment, etc. Right. Um, and part of our job is to seize that moment and try to point them down those roads. And our team is focused on that. Cool. I mean, it, it can be everything from, you know, we, we joke about it, but it's, you know, if, if you've been around little kids, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and adults, I mean, yeah. let's face it, we've all seen this and maybe done it. Um, people think they wash their hands. Or they think they know how to wash their hands. And we right. have a wonderful interactive demonstration oh, cool. where we put people through uh, a little <laughs> hand-washing exercise um, by putting some powder on, on their hands. And we ask them to go and wash it off. And then they come back and we put it under a black light oh. and show them all the powder they missed. Oh, wow. And it's, it's a little shocking wow. to see that, well, I missed between my fingers. I missed the top of my hand. And, uh, you know, behind my <laughs> thumb, there's a big glob. Um <laughs> You know, so we do things like that that are very engaging and just, you know, basic, you know, science That's uh, neat. type of health practices. But then the, the, the pre presentation to our visitors of people who are nurses, doctors, researchers, to talk to them about DNA and genetic sciences, which are a, a big thing here in Connecticut now. Right. Uh, all the STEM careers that are involved in health and health care um, present a ton of uh career opportunities and also represent a ton of need uh, in terms of the workforce demands of the future. Um, so in, as far as what we're trying to do to illuminate the possibility of those careers and the need to think and 
behave in a science-informed way as a society. I think we're on top of those things. You know, clearly the shutdown, which was, you know, dramatic for our organization and every other one, yeah. has been terrible. You know, I mean, we've, we've gone from uh, heading into peak season for field trips and vacation visitors to no people and no revenue. Right. So we had to do what most have done, um, furloughs and dramatic reductions in expenses. Right. We were fortunate to get uh, significant support through the um, SBA, a Small Business Administration uh, loan program, uh, and also our board of trustees. And we also did you know, a really good job for the last 10 years of pre- creating for ourselves a position of reasonable financial stability. Nice. So that we have a little bit of a reserve to go to to get over a situation like this. Gotcha. But I would say that it's not a, a situation that even if you have some limited reserves, you can get through without reducing your expenses, without changing the way you operate, particularly because it looks like we're in for a long haul here. So, yeah, it does. You know, it does look we have like our eyes open. Yeah. It does look like we in, we're in for the long haul. You know, when you, you mentioned that and... And it does, and it looks like um, you know businesses uh, will have to adapt for for quite some time, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And you know, um, I'm curious, you know, so since the science center is open, people can go, right? And if they can, how how many people can go in at a time? Do you have to schedule ahead of time? Um, I'm curious about that. Right, because I'm sure well, people we, are looking for any outlet right now, <laughs> anything to do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope they are because we have one for them. We opened to the public um, on the 20th of June. Uh, We started with a sort of a soft roll for our members who haven't had the benefit of coming, which is the chief benefit of membership to a museum uh, for three months. So we gave them first shot at it. Um, And they've responded really nicely. We've worked our hearts out to create a safe, clean, welcoming, educational experience and it's really resonating well people are having a magnificent time cool and the staff's loving being back to work and back to welcoming our community um that said to your question jeff uh the capacity of the number of people that we can serve has been reduced by about half that said we're not seeing numbers that approach half so far because i think there's still a lot of anxiety and caution in the marketplace so people are not eager to go out until they really feel it's safe. I think that as they make those determinations, they're going to find the science center is a terrific option. Right. I've been around enough to see that there are places you can go where nobody's paying any attention to health protocols. Right. Customers or business operators in some cases. Now, there are exceptions, and there are many exceptions. We're doing a wonderful job, and it is not easy. Right. We're in a situation where it costs more to serve every visitor, even if you had the same number of visitors than you did before because of all the safety requirements. Right. But really what you're having is fewer visitors and fewer customers because of the limitations right. and because of the hesitancy that people have. So we have you know, this a wonderful exhibition on Mayan civilization that uh, people can enjoy now. Uh, great exhibits that we opened in the last year or so about planet Earth and human impact and oh, nice. engineering. We've made wonderful improvements to our exterior plaza areas. And the Science Center really is filled with 
very large light-filled, air-filled spaces with great circulation of fresh air and filtered air so that it's, you know, among the indoor environments you can go to, um, it is among the safest you can find. Nice. That's awesome. That's great to hear. That's really great to hear. And uh, I definitely plan the next few weeks coming back um, definitely for something to do. Uh, My girlfriend and I go and 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 recheck it out because I haven't been since it first opened around 2009 2010 so I'm actually curious to come back and and now and see what it's like you know all these years later and you know uh speaking you know c- continuing on the the covid-19 um you know during the pandemic we've had to really rely on doctors and science do you see the pandemic playing a role at the science center in the future um with maybe a possibility of of um you know uh of its own, like, uh, like maybe like a bigger exhibit or anything like that. So people can learn about, uh, learn more about it, considering how much it impacted our, you know, our country and our world. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, you know, already it is part of our programming in the, in the science center. Gotcha. And it's clearly much easier to tune up, um, a program about a complex topic than it is to create an exhibit because exhibits can cost millions of dollars very easily and take a long time to develop and do them the right way. Um, so on the programming side, we're already doing that. It so happens that we're in the process of a major redo of our health exhibit gallery. The primary focus of that is around genetic sciences and there is a genetic and DNA aspect Um, that we'll explore with regard to COVID. We did actually, with the support of other collaborators in the museum industry, mount a modest kind of panel type of exhibit around coronavirus um, that is on display now. Okay. Uh, But we are, as we overhaul the health sciences exhibit gallery, we're going to increase and expand our treatment of infectious diseases as a topic with nice. the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 obviously being uh, front and center right. uh, in, that, in that discussion. That's really cool. I'm, I'm glad to know that. I'm actually even more looking forward to come to, to check that out. And I'm sure a lot of, uh, a lot of the listeners would, would, you know, they're definitely going to want to come out and check that out for sure. I mean, because, you know, there's so much to be learned there um, with everything that's going on. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, can, can you speak to how keeping kids and adults interested in science is so important considering, considering where we are now with COVID-19? You know, why is it, you know, why is it so important that we keep people constantly engaged in science? Well, you know, it is a moment, if ever there was one, that reinforces that. Um, you know, I think you can look here in Connecticut at what has been, by and large, a science-informed policy and strategy to contend with the coronavirus. And we are at one of the lowest infection rates in the nation with a fair amount of testing. Now, that is not infallible data. Um, You know, I was reading an article today uh, about how badly, uh, you know, we we underestimated um, as a nation uh, or understood the spread of coronavirus in the early going and how our failure to get quickly enough um, to action costs tens of thousands of lives. Right. Um, time is of the essence with these things. So I think all of us who are watching and thinking about this in a science-informed, data-informed way are worried about whether the data is telling us everything. That said, there is more data out there, and there is enough data out there to get a pretty good 
um, sense, uh, I think, of, of where this is headed. And it seems to me that that data indicates very strongly that if you are proactive and take certain measures such as social physical distancing, sanitization, wearing masks, um, you know, you can, you can accelerate your ability to get back to a level of pre-vaccine normalcy. Right. I don't think there will be normalcy without a vaccine. Right. Um, but, you know, to, to try to circle back, Jeff, to your, to your question. Sure. I, I just think that, that this is a time, whether you're talking about the coronavirus or our environment or the kinds of jobs that will lead uh, successful economies in the future, you have got to be thinking about science, technology, engineering, and math. And our STEM. societal... That's right. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. Our societal awareness of those things um, is mixed, and our societal buy-in uh, at times like this is mixed. And when you have people who you know, literally are resisting very clear medical and scientific advice um, because you're not willing to, you know, uh, give credence to science. You're, you're putting yourself and you're putting others and you're putting um, our recovery, including our economic recovery, at great risk. And uh, it's very serious. Um, and and that's why I think our mission and our work as science educators and science communicators is so important because one of the reasons people have been enabled to not listen or hear science is because science has been so often presented in an officious, abstract, right, uh, unpleasant way. Right. Uh, you know, uh, my predecessor at the Science Center, Dr. Sergi, was always fond of saying, you know, he grew up in an era when, you know, he literally had a teacher tell him one time, if you're not crying about it, you're not really learning science. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he would say, you know, my gosh, that can't be right. Right. We have to discover the enjoyment and the relevance and the significance of science in people's lives. And it doesn't mean everybody has to aspire to be a scientist. Exactly. But we have to be science informed and science minded and science aware. And that's our job is to try to bring science home in a way that's relevant and tangible, not abstract, not, um, uh, not arrogant, you know, all the things that tend to get people like me as a kid right. to turn the other way from formal science, the way we sort of grew up with it. Right. All due respect to the fact that there were <laughs> wonderful science teachers. There was always that one. Well, it wasn't always. But for the lucky ones, there was that, that one teacher who could break through right. and brought a home to you. And those typically are the ones who created the people who are our science leaders now. You know what? It's funny you mention that. I did have a an amazing science teacher, um, Trent Harrison. Uh, he was great. Newtown High School, Trent, Har uh, Trent Harrison. Mm. Absolutely awesome. He was, he was really great. Um, I don't even know if you listened to this, but hey, if you did, thank you. I mean, because he was great. I mean, did earth science? I mean, it was earth science, but he made it fun. He was very upbeat. He was very energetic. We always had something fun to do. He really wanted you to have fun and really learn. You know, and it's funny that you, 
you mentioned just before about COVID-19, about how there are people that are skeptic about science and skeptic about scientists and, and, and about the facts and stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, being that climate change is also a hot topic, um, no pun intended, <laughs> in the science community, um, and just in general to a point where it's out of late, you know, it's as of late become more political. Is there a climate change exhibit at the Science Center? And if so, why is it important that we teach our young generation about, you know, our, of course, ever-changing Earth? Hmm. Well, yes, there is. Um, and it is important. Uh, and it's crucial. I, I think in, um, yeah, I love this. This is a new exhibition we created and opened in the past year called Our Changing Earth. Oh, nice. And it takes on, I think, beautifully the the overall picture of the changes and evolution of our planet and the context that gives us for the discussion about human impact right. on the changes in the planet and its climate. And it, you know, as with so many things, it turns out that both are true. It is true that some of the largest, most dramatic changes in our environment and our climate, um, are naturally occurring right. and happened over millions of years. And in our exhibit, you can, I love doing this, you can start by looking at an image on a wall that shows um, like a, uh, a profile of the Connecticut Science Center, kind of at knee level, and then the Traveler's Tower that's a little higher than that, right. it's a big skyscraper in Hartford, and then the Freedom Tower that's a lot higher than that. Right, And then it shows you that 20,000 years ago, even the Freedom Tower was just dwarfed by glaciers in the Connecticut River Valley. <laughs> and you go, oh, well, that's 20,000 years ago. That's a long time. And boy, so much has changed. Right. And all those glaciers melted before we had gasoline engines and all this stuff. So it, it all just happens around us. Um, and then you go into a, another part of the experience and you look at a digital graphic presentation of tectonic plates as they moved around the globe over the millions of years. That's awesome. And you can set it up so it takes you back to where the planet looked completely different than it does today wow. and then let it kind of carry you through you know, a billion <laughs> years ago, you know, half a billion years, hundreds of millions, a uh, hundred million years, et cetera. And to where it is today, right. today's date, where the tectonic plates are. And you go, oh, that's the globe I remember, you know, studying in high school, wow. way back in, in right, high school right, right. Right? or elementary right. school. And then you push the other button and it goes forward. And guess what? It all keeps moving. Wow. And you look another, you know, couple of hundred million years down the road and the planet is unrecognizable. Wow. Now, of course, we won't be around to see that. So that's <laughs> one view that says, wow, we are part of something that is so much bigger and so far beyond our daily conception and our horizon and our span of view. At the same time, we can show you that in the very, very short period of time, in the last 50, 30 years, there has been a dramatic spike um, in climate temperature and in indicators around the globe um, that are a function of global warming, in part caused by man's interventions in the way the climate works. 
Right. And that we, in fact, can take specific actions that will mitigate that. And we have one beautiful interactive that's, that's basically a, a, a scenario viewer. And one is, if we do nothing, how many days of 100 degrees or over will we have in Connecticut in 2050? Right. And I forget the number exactly, but it goes from 18 now to 48 then. Wow. Okay, that's a lot of hot wow. days. Yeah. Think about your air conditioning bill, right? Right. And the brownout days and all that stuff. Right. And then there's another one that says, if we take moderate action, where will we get? And you can see that it measurably decreases the number of 100 degree plus days in 2050 or whatever the, the, the date is on the horizon, but it's near future. It's in your lifetime. Right. Um, and then, and then you look, if we took aggressive action, how much more we could reduce that impact. And it inspires you to see not only are there indeed these global forces that some will point to, to obviate the discussion about man, man, uh, caused climate change. Um, right. Um, that indeed those larger forces have always been at work in our work, but there is also a discernible, discreet, and very, very serious man-made impact as well. And you yeah. can see it right there for your very eyes. Wow, that's and then you know that's really cool. You ask, what can I do about that? And you know, we take you through, you know, all your options to try to become a small part of the solution to make sure we're not living in a greenhouse in fifty <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah, no, I I agree, and and that that's really really cool. I um, another thing I'm I'm looking forward to check out uh, climate change. Uh, very important to me. Something that I definitely look for in in a leader. Um, I think you know, no matter where you lie on the spectrum of of politics, I think it's very unfortunate that we have a president right now that doesn't accept the facts of science that you know climate change is real and exists. And um, you know, I hope that maybe soon, <laughs> uh, you know, that will change and we'll get someone who, you know, can, be, you know, believe in it again and we can continue on the progress that was started before. Um, but, you know, staying away from that, um, just, just to get, just to get back to the science center, is there, is there a certain area of, um, science that you're drawn to more than others? And do you have a favorite exhibit of all the exhibits at the science center? And if so, why is that? Mm. Well, um, uh you know, I would say just about the the science and politics question, we are not a political institution. Right. You're allowed to be political, and, and I in my private life might be political. <laughs> right. Um, we're not a political institution. We're a science institution. Right. So regardless of your political affiliation or whether we like you or dislike you uh, as a political per- personage, et cetera, um, we ask you to, in setting policy that affects our future and that of our society, our youth, and our planet, and all of its resources, to at least concern yourself with what science tells you. Right. Um, so for the next president, we would make that argument as we had with this president. Right. Um, and our presentation suggests strongly that there is a future for a world that is um, going to attend to climate change. There's an economy uh, in that future if we devote ourselves to the transition necessary to get there. Right. Uh, and that science can take us there uh, if we use it the right ways. Science can also take us down the wrong road, as it has in many cases, if we use it the wrong ways. 
Sure. You know, science is sort of agnostic to whether you choose the right path or the wrong <laughs> path. It just right. gives you paths. Right. Some of them are extraordinarily destructive and some of them are, ex- are, are extremely constructive. And that's where the humanity <laughs> yeah. enters and, and, and our own, you know, sense of justice and morals enter. Um, as far as my favorite, I would say that the, the, the Earth, the Art Changing Earth exhibition has become one of my favorites. And you could probably tell that as I, you know, kind of yammered on about the things about it I like. Um, there are other parts of it, like, for example, as part of the introduction to the story of glaciers, uh, you walk in and there's very oddly shaped rocks and boulders that are the replicas of real rocks and boulders that are arrayed in strange ways. One giant boulder as big as a Volkswagen on top of a bunch of smaller rocks. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> you, you would look at it, well, you know, Druids or Dumbledore from Harry Potter must have put it, put it there. You right, know? right. Um, and the real story that's revealed there is that these boulders were left in these odd configurations by the glaciers that were three times as tall as the Freedom Tower as they passed through the Connecticut River Valley 20,000 years ago. Wow. And they were filled with natural junk that just right. kind of followed them along. And as they melted, they left it. They just wow. dumped it like any other litterer would. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and that's our landscape. It's right. a landscape of soil that was carved, moved, deposited, dumped in different ways and created the peaks and valleys that leave our, our natural environment the way it is. And right. some of those are what are referred to as glacier erratics, which are these very strange looking rock shapes and formations that you can see in places in Connecticut. So we replicate those and they're very curious and interesting to look at, but they help to tell a story. Um, that's just fascinating and illuminating and leads to the larger story of our planet and why our part of the world looks the way it does. Right. No, exactly. Um, you know, I want to ask you something and, and I, I want to come back to this cause I, I forgot to ask it before, since you can't have camps over the summer, I see that the center's doing camps in a box as a way to keep kids, uh, engaged. Um, could you elaborate on the center's effort to educate kids from a distance? Yes, uh, Jeff, uh, I am, you know, the most painful day in my experience running the Science Center was the day when we had to have a Zoom call with every one of our employees and announce that we were going to close the doors Uh. and that a large percentage of them were going to be furloughed, Uh. um, partially or fully. Um, That said, we at the same time stated meaningfully our intention that we were not going to go away as an institution and that we would convert as much of our effort as we could with the limited resources we'd be able to expend during the time with no revenue coming in right? Um, towards redeploying and recreating programming that could be delivered electronically. So um, we're talking on Zoom. I mean, we've done, we've done <laughs> uh, Facebook Lives, uh, you know, you name the platform, right? Um, whether it is professional development for teachers or a lunch bunch where our science team has gotten really, really good at doing TV with Roz, the blue tongued skink or whatever the, the tarantula, 
Yeah, know, I, yeah, uh, I've, I've mistakes, seen it. This, the Science the Center goes live. Yeah, I've I've seen I've seen the live videos on Facebook. Yeah. And now that you mention it, because I am um, as most I hope most listeners uh, uh, will go and like the the Connecticut Science Center on Facebook, because then when they do the live events, uh, you can watch them. And it, you, yeah, it usually comes around lunchtime. I, I've I've watched a few myself, right. so it's funny. It's funny you mention that. Yeah, we're doing those, and we're right now innovating programs for schools because we think that there's a decent chance that even if schools reopen, that they may not be able to do a lot of field trips. Right. So we'll be able to go to them digitally cool. Um, with excellent programs that will help teachers. That's awesome. And we've also been you know, very much concerned with you know, the huge challenge that mom and dad, caregivers of all kinds, and teachers are facing yeah. with trying to bring quality content to their students remotely um, so we've been working on that. And then if indeed they're in classrooms and they need support, particularly around STEM, which is often the case, we'll be there with services for them. Um, so, uh, you That's know, awesome. we've said to the team that, well, we have gone from, I think, primarily a in-person presentation. We've, we've always focused on the thing that makes museum experiences typically special, that in-person interactive experience. Um, and we'll never drop the ball on that as long as we're able to operate, which thank goodness we are again. But during a three-month period, we became an institution that has the capability to do very good online programming. Nice. And we are now going to go from one-dimensional to two-dimensional forever. Nice. So we're not going to give up the ghost on that. We're going to get better at it. We're going to use cool. the skills that we've built. And deliver services, um, I think, with a lot of enthusiasm and hopefully a lot of impact and reach uh, through both formats. That's awesome. Yeah, there's been a lot of adapting. And I, and I got to say, the Connecticut Science Center has done well. And I, I feel like there's no surprise with, with Matt Fleury at the helm. All things are possible. <laughs> but um, uh, you I have know, a great team. Exactly. And, and the rest of your team, of course. And, you know... I, I want to ask you, since you mentioned what was the hardest day of, uh, of being the president and CEO, you know, and, and your job there at the Science Center, um, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, uh, what, was your, uh, what was your proudest moment as the, the CEO and president to date? Wow, that's, that's, wow, that's a question I'm, I'm not ready for, I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Okay. I mean, I do remember when we, we finished the building and we're getting ready to open it. And I remember just a sense of, I'm not sure I'd call it pride, just a sense of overwhelming, I don't know, just awe that, that the darn thing actually got built. <laughs> right. There we were, because it was a rough road and a long road, not just for us, sure. but for this whole community and for 30 years trying to get the thing built. Right. Um, and we were lucky to be the group that was, you know, had the moment, um, the moment and the opportunity to do it. You know, but since then, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I'll just, th this is a little bit like a cop out and it. it's not <laughs> meant to be, but I guess I'm sort of, I'm, I'm thinking about my recent experience. You know, I went in and, and uh, just to observe, not to interfere because my team is magnificent. They don't need, need me to figure out how to open the doors and provide great service and present right. the exhibits beautifully. They, no, of course. That's, that's what they do. Of so course. I don't pretend to take, take that away from, from them, but I am part of it. 
Right. And, uh, you know, determined that it would happen and supported it. So I went that morning to, to just observe. And it was last Saturday. And um, we had bought wonderful new uniforms. Um, we had provided all of the PPE and all the training and done a huge amount of nice um, modifications to the building, the processes, et cetera. And just watched them with uh, members of our team, uh, a diverse team, uh, huddling and preparing for the day. And, and I have to say, it was a very touching moving moment for me uh, and i joke but it's true that i think the only people are happier to reopen than the guests were the staff <laughs> because <laughs> this is what they live to do of course you know another piece that you know i could just point to really quickly i don't know how much time you have have jeff but oh plenty plenty okay is the the um the uh when the 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 pandemic struck there was you know appropriately and wonderfully a great outpouring of support and recognition for our healthcare practitioners. Right. Um, and the heart emblem began showing up to say thank you to the nurses, the doctors and all that. And that was really a beautiful gesture. You would see suddenly the Marriott hotel next to us, the windows were illuminated in a giant heart shape on the skyline. Oh, wow. Um, and, and you saw that in, in communities around the country. Right. And it was quite beautiful. We were really touched by that and asked ourselves what we could do. And without my direction or interference, um, some of our very, very talented exhibit technicians put together a 10 or 15 foot illuminated heart and placed it in a giant window that overlooks um, our eastern vista. Wow. And you can see it from on the skyline of the city. Wow. And they lighted it up at night. And, you know, you would just see this breathtaking image of a breathtaking building that's right. about science and all the things we've talked about here. Right. And making this statement um, that we honor and appreciate the people who are using science and caring uh, and heart and grit to care for us through this crisis. Um, but also to say that we celebrate science itself and that science will be our hope. And we were so, um, excited about it that we, you know, took some pictures. I posted it on my LinkedIn page and I do have a profile on LinkedIn that has quite a lot of followers now. And, um, this beautiful image that one of our staff members just took with an iPhone, um, and, and I posted it and got more views and appreciation for that, likes, claps, hearts, whatever, than right. anything I've ever posted. And I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm not uh, some celebrity who gets <laughs> social media action all the time. Hey, you're a celebrity to us on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, you know, but I mean, you know, my, my wife's in the TV business and she knows what a lot of clicks look like. Yeah, I, Irene you know, O'Connor. Yes, that's yeah, right. I'm, I'm not in that, that league. But it was truly overwhelming the, relative to my usual response level, what we saw there. And we saw it across our social media. So we got to thinking that the Science Center should leverage that image and the response it got to do a campaign about science that would both honor the healthcare workers, um, but also honor science and say 
that science is our way forward. So we created this beautiful campaign. I don't know if the podcast, you can link it or, or something, but it's on YouTube. Definitely. Definitely. Called Love Science. And if you go to the Connecticut Science Center's website or YouTube page, uh, our channel, you, you can see it. And okay. it's a beautiful 30 second TV spot that's now on local television and on our social media. That's awesome. And on, and on cable. Um, that is basically after a creative process with our uh, advertising team, became a postcard from science that opens by saying, you know, roughly speaking, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, you know, I will watch over you. I will keep you together through the communications of science and technology provide. Um, I will find the cure. Um, I will care for you. Um, I am, you know, I will always be here for you and together we can solve this. Wow. Love science. Wow. And um, we created this iconic, sort of, uh, I won't call it a brand, but it's graphic that says love, uh, heart and then the word science. And it, um, you know, ties in with the image of the science center with that heart in the window. Right. And became, you know, I think a, a message that's resonated across everything we do now. And it's what we think, whether we're open or closed, we have one message, love science. Right. And this is when that's what we have to do. Right. We have to believe in science, support science, love science, and love the people who do science and support them. Exactly. I don't care, you know, what side of the political spectrum you're on. And you can can be a denier or you can be a person who rejects the idea that you should wear your face mask or change your behavior. But you're still up there saying that we're going to have a vaccine. You still appreciate that the the road ultimately is treatment and vaccine. Yep. And whether you're going to buy into and abide by the data science that is telling us now what our behavior should be. Right. Um, you're buying. You're still going to buy into the idea that we need those darn scientists out there to get us a treatment and a cure. That's right. And a vaccine. That's right. And regardless of your political persuasion, uh, that's the road forward. And that's, that's the message, I think, that we, you know, at the end of the day with regard to COVID are, are expressing. We have to acknowledge that and we have to support it. Right. No, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I, <laughs> everything you said was perfect. <laughs> I couldn't have worded it, you know, any better than that. You know, I mean, yeah, it's like it's like everything we've been seeing with with the pandemic. You know, we're we're all in this together, and I I think it's important that we all get educated together. And you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, speaking of education, is you know, um, a few more things before we wrap up. Is you were you're in your second term as chair of the Connecticut Board of Regents for Higher Education. Um, you you were uh, appointed again for the second time by uh, uh, in 2018 by Governor Ned Lamont. And for those that may not know what the Board of Regents is or what you do in your role. I was just wondering if you could uh, explain that. Yes, the, the Connecticut Board of Regents for Higher Education is the governing board for 17 state uni- colleges and universities in Connecticut. Gotcha. Those are the four state universities which have their geographical designations 
uh, Eastern Connecticut State University, Western Connecticut State University, Central Connecticut State University, and in uh, New Haven, Southern Connecticut State University, uh, and 12 community colleges that are scattered around the state, uh, and then Charter Oak State College, um, which is the 17th institution. Which so you are alumni of. <laughs> uh, proudly so. And I'm <laughs> yes. also proudly an alumni of a UConn. community college in UConn. Yep. That's it. Um, I'm a real, real believer in, in community colleges. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're the governing board. So we set policy uh, and have a very serious accountability for the health and uh, usefulness uh, of uh, and value and sustainability of these institutions. Um, they are run uh, by a very professional uh, administrators uh, at different levels, um, and we don't, you know, try to be a college president. That's not that's not our job, gotcha. um, or a campus CEO or, or the system president. Those are those are or provost, but um, the Board of Regents is statu- statutorily established um, as being the governing authority that does things such as uh, approve curriculum, um, uh, uh, approve, you know, courses that are, that are brought forward through a, a whole process that's really faculty-driven, but there's a, a process by which we, we have something to say about what moves forward. Um, the uh, uh, finances of the system are probably the chief concern that we involve ourselves with. Gotcha. And then the basic, you know, basic uh, standard of student success is this system and are these institutions serving our community in the way that they need to. Right. And, you know, by and large, I would say that every one of them is magnificently uh, successful and important, um, but they are deeply troubled financially uh, for reasons that are not all of their own making, that's for sure. But the world around um, uh, higher education and, and customers, students of higher education has changed and become really challenging. Um, so we have our hands full in trying to make sure that the things that students need from these institutions can continue, uh, that they can continue to evolve, to be responsive to current needs as opposed to what the needs might have been years ago, uh, and that they'll be economically viable for a long, long time to come. Right. That's, um, listen, that is so great. Uh, I, man, I have learned so much about the Connecticut Science Center and, and about you. And, and this has been a great podcast. And I'm so glad I'm so glad you were able to come on. And I definitely want to have you back on soon. Because I, I, there were definitely so many more things we could have touched on. But before we wrap up, I have a couple, just two more questions. One, what was it like for you in 2009? when you were named one of uh, Greater Hartford's uh, most influential uh, leaders by Hartford Magazine. Now, I'm just curious because I know you love Hartford so much. Um, you know, uh, Hartford, you know, you, you've done so many great things for, um, for Hartford. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what was that like? You know, what did that mean to you? And, and what does Hartford really mean to you? Mm. Well, I, I really have spent, um, you know, most recently, 20 years uh, focused on trying to help this community. And I think we all have chapters in life where we commit ourselves to trying to 
make a difference to something. And I've been so fortunate to have the opportunity to do that in my capacity at the Science Center. I mean, I, those are really nice accolades to get and, and really appreciated. Um, but, you know, I work for a board of 40 people who volunteer their time, and many of them have much bigger jobs than I do <laughs> and are much more accomplished than I am who could have been, you know, 40 people ahead of me. Um, I, I, I do think, well, I'm proud of the job that, that we have done at the Science Center. Part of it is, you know, really the, the, the institution itself is so important and regarded and valued that if you're doing an effective job running the Connecticut Science Center, you should be considered uh, an influential business leader, whether you're one of the top 15 or 50 or whatever, you know, as <laughs> somebody's, somebody's, uh, somebody's choice other than mine. Um, <laughs> you know, so th those accolades are nice, but I, I, I do, you know, I would say, and I probably didn't emphasize this enough, um, an institution like the Science Center does not exist without volunteer leaders who are, you know, I work for a board of trustees, just like every CEO works for a board, right. unless they are privately held and own their own company. Um, so these are volunteer leaders who are, you know, people across um, the spectrum of uh, education and business and philanthropy and community leadership um, around Connecticut. And they're they're just magnificently committed to the Science Center. They give their time, their expertise, their support, their moral support, uh, their money. They bring their organization's money to bear to help make this happen. Right. Um, you know, that's the kind of leadership that's often not um, recognized. Um, and I would say, you know, that was, I think, the Business Journal you said. I mean, they, you know, right. they, they are a pretty savvy group and they, they – have a good eye on who's really making a difference in their community. Right. But there are also people who are just not celebrated. Right. Uh, even on my staff, uh, there are people who, you know, what they do and what they give, uh, you know, it's just amazing, uh, you know, uh, what, what they can be regarded for and, and really aren't. And what's great is they don't even care. <laughs> like, uh, you very know, I feel like I just, very humble, humble people over at the kind of uh, Connecticut science center. <laughs> I think I think I think they are. They just they they love doing what they do, you know? right? No, and, and I see yeah. that with you. You're a very humble guy, and you know another thing that you're very humble about that I'm sure was very interesting to the employees that you work with um, years ago, a few years back uh, at that gala that my dad was uh, with you um, when you came out and you started playing banjo. So what, what was that? What do you think that, what was that like for your employees? What was the reaction when, when they saw that? Oh, wow. You know, you know, my boss or, or the Connecticut president, the CEO of the Connecticut science center, he plays the banjo in a, in a bluegrass yeah. band. Like what, what was the reaction? And, 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 you know, you're modest about it, but what, what, what's it like for you? Well, <laughs> well, we, I think it's really healthy to have a, pastime right um that's different than what you do for work sure and many of us just do get sucked into work and it becomes our pastime and there's sometimes where that's just what it has to be um but uh yeah i i enjoy playing music and i've always enjoyed bluegrass music and that's where i met your father um who's such a, a great musician and a great guy and um 
you know, as far as how the staff, we actually, had, you know, we've done like, you know, staff talent shows and things like that. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, I think I, I joke with my music friends who, and, it, and it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll hang out with my music friends at a bluegrass festival or, or a gig or a show or whatever. And they have no idea, half of them, what I do for a living. And I don't talk about it because right. we're meeting in an entirely different context. Of course, of course. And 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 it's it's that's part of what makes that kind of outlet great <laughs> is that you just you're living a different kind of existence yeah. momentarily. Yeah. And and it's you know it's fun, but at the same time, you know, when these talent shows, some our employees have all these talents nobody knew anything about, and just to. You know, they love seeing the boss have the guts to get up and fall flat on his face, you know, <laughs> and I'm willing to do that. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, well, no, I, you know, I, I do it enough that I've gotten, gotten better at it. <laughs> yeah, better. Yeah. Have fun. But uh, I think they appreciate your willingness to let your hair down a little bit. Right. That right. means more now than it did three months ago because I haven't <laughs> had a haircut in a while. But, but I think they, you know, they enjoy That's awesome. that. That's awesome. Um, I, I mean, I won't kid you. I find it as frightening to stand up and play music in front of people as I do sometimes to perform my role professionally. Right. You know, it's it's, <laughs> right. it's a whole other kind of courage you have to have for that. True. No, it's true. No, you're 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 right. You're you're spot on, and 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 you're very humble. You're a very great banjo player and musician in general, and and you're very humble. I, I remember, man, young, very very young, um, Middle Springs campground, or or you name it, just just you know, <laughs> with my dad and 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 yourself. And so, one thing I ask all my guests before before they leave me um, is. A question that I think is is pretty it's a hot debate in the in the state of Connecticut, at least I think it is, and some of my guests have thought, yeah, yeah, and some are like, nah, but so my question to you is and because because you're in Hartford and you know you're you know you're such a uh, great ambassador of Hartford and everything you've done for Hartford, I'll give you a two parter like I did with Mayor Mark Bowen in Danbury. I didn't want to leave his his people in Danbury stranded so so a two part question, so um I guess first I'll ask. You're a pizza guy, right? Do you like pizza? You enjoy pizza? <laughs> well, this or... is a, a, a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I, I love pizza. The problem is, and this narrows my choices, if you're going to ask me to make a choice. Got you. I have tur- turns out that I am gluten intolerant. Okay, okay. And, and lactose intolerant. So pizza, okay. which is, you know, built on... This is a first on the podcast. <laughs> lactose and gluten is just not a good fit for, for my digestion anymore, gotcha. which is a heartbreaking lifestyle gotcha. change. There are some reasonably good gluten-free fake cheese pizzas out there. Gotcha. But they're nothing like the pizzas you're about to ask me about. Well, I was going to ask you, have you ever had a pizza <laughs> from New Haven before? Um, <laughs> right. and if you have, which is your favorite and if you haven't, that's fine. And, and if, when you do get pizza, what, what is a place you like to go that, that does mm. it for you, that does it for you if, if you do. And if you don't, that's totally fine. I, I, I figured at some point I was going to find someone who, who has an issue <laughs> with lactose as I once did. So really no issues. Oh, well, yeah, I've had New Haven pizza. I, it's been so long. Okay. since I've enjoyed much pizza of any kind locally in Hartford. Um, 
and and I have pizza mostly because my boys love pizza. Oh, of course. Um, there's a place called Harry's uh, in West Hartford, and they make a pretty good um, gluten-free pizza. Actually, okay, pretty cool. good. Okay, cool. Um, Harry's. All right. Yeah. So, but pizza, uh, because of gluten and lactose, uh, I would say the pizza has fallen from my list of favorite foods just because I'm not <laughs> gotcha. having real pizza anymore. Gotcha. It's like gotcha. eating eating lactose free ice cream. It's <laughs> it's just not the same. True. No, no, I completely agree. And listen, Matt Flurry, president and CEO of the Connecticut Science Center, I really appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. Um, you know, you've been such a great friend of my family's for years, and um, I, you know, I appreciate that. You're a tre- tremendous individual. You've done so many great things. It was an honor to even have you on the podcast. And, um, you know, we, we could have talked about so much more. So I'm hoping that, you know, down the road, you know, a little while from now, we can, we can come back, reconvene, maybe touch on some things that we didn't touch on. So thank you so much, uh, Matt, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy to you, your family, your wife, everyone. And uh, I look forward to, to maybe running into you at the Science Center sometime soon. Uh, when I visit and, and just thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. You'd be welcome and uh, be great if you brought your dad along too. I will. I will. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You have a good night. You too. Thank you. Thank you once again to our guests on the podcast today, the CEO and president of the Connecticut Science Center, Matt Flurry. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon down the line. And just like that, another episode of Sweeten Up is in the books. Thank you, as always, to Morgan Lutzi for our music and post-production, our art director, Kurt Vinci, and our editor and show writer, Nick Pasacreta. Remember, if you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts so that you never miss a future episode. Next week on the podcast, I once again have two guests for you all that you are not going to want to miss. First up next week, I will be joined by Matt Ritter. Matt Ritter is a lawyer and Democratic politician from Connecticut. He is currently the Majority Leader of the Connecticut House of Representatives and a Connecticut representative representing the 1st District. Then, later next week, I will be sitting down with Ann Hughes. Ann Hughes is an American politician who is the member of the Connecticut House of Representatives from the 135th District, serving Weston, Easton, and parts of Reading in Fairfield County, Connecticut. She is a member of the Democratic Party and serves as co-chair of the Progressive Democratic Caucus. You do not want to miss out on the fun. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, love you all, peace.